But if you will, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. And I'm going to have to stop making jokes at his expense pretty soon. And as you turn there, let's uh, stand together as, re- as we read God's word. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. God, we ask that this morning you would open our eyes to your word and to the truth that it has for us. We're grateful for this time to gather and grateful for this time to worship and ask that you be working in our hearts and our minds. Even now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now Paul begins this morning, finally. Finally, Now, if you remember the passage from last week, he's talking about finding true peace. Finally, if you would like to find that true peace, if you desire a life that is free from anxiety and from worry, if we're rejoicing in the Lord at all times, in all circumstances, in all situations, Paul says that if that is you, then this is what it looks like. This is what the mind at peace will look like. And then we're given this list that nobody could possibly disagree with. These are things that are undeniably good. You know, the Romans valued certain virtues in their society, and, and these would, be, would have been virtues that they held in high regard. And yet they're so completely distinctive from how the, ma- the natural mind normally thinks. You know, this is a text that, as one commentator put it, is relentlessly demanding. And why is that? Well, it involves the way that we think. Psalm 26, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart in my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The psalmist here asked the Lord to test and to try and to prove his heart and his mind. Now the heart and mind are two things that go together. The heart is the essence of our being, but the mind is how we think, the things that we dwell upon. The two things are inseparable. We see that Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 9, knowing their thoughts, he's talking to some Pharisees, why do you think evil in your heart? Again, we don't normally associate these things together, but your heart and your mind go together. I'd like to to just point out that for some of us, the thought of asking God to test and to try and to prove our heart and our mind is a little bit scary. We might not necessarily want to offer the Lord to look in those places. The truth is that we don't even have to invite God to do that because he already can do that. 
He knows our hearts and our minds. He knows the things that we truly love. He knows how we feel about everything. And he knows how we feel about him. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. And the, the omniscience of God can be an incredibly intimidating thing, but it can also be an incredibly liberating thing. You know, it's incredibly timid, intimidating. There's nothing that we can do to hide anything from God. There's no word that we say or thought that we think. There's nothing. He knows everything about everything. There's nowhere to hide. If we've thought it, he knows it. I'm ashamed to say that I've, saw, I've thought some very shameful thoughts. Uh, if you knew all of the thoughts that I have thought, even perhaps this week, you might not really be interested in hearing what I have to think about this passage this morning. But God knows all those things. It's also incredibly liberating. Now, how is that? Well, the fact that he knows us, and yet he still loves us. He knows everything about us, everything, again, that there is to know, everything that we've done or thought in secret, he knows those things. Yet knowing it all, he still went to the cross. He still gave his all. See, we don't have to hide anything from God, and in fact, we can't. We can't hide anything from him. We don't have to live in fear of what he might find out. We don't have to tiptoe around God. We don't have to try to keep our actions one way and the thoughts of our hearts hidden as if somehow he wouldn't already know because he does. And when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was in Mark chapter 12, Jesus answers, this is it, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, Jesus' love for us is all-consuming, and he asks in us the same thing for him. That he would be the main object of our affection, that we would love him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And when Jesus gave this response, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is known as the Shema. Shema means to hear. Okay? This, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, do you notice what was missing in there? What was missing? Jesus adds the word mind. Now, this isn't some, something that he's radically changing but this is a fulfillment of the command of God from previous. This is an all-encompassing love, something that is our heart, our soul, our strength, but also our mind. See, the, religi the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, were concerned merely with their outward behavior, with their actions. And the reason why they're concerned with that is because it's a lot easier to deal with the things that are on the outside than it is to deal with the things that are on the inside. It's like when you get sick. It's a lot easier to self-medicate using ibuprofen and just hope that eventually you're going to get better, that things are going to go away. Or you can go to the doctor and find out what's actually wrong with me. But, you know, I'm a man, so statistically I'm not going to go to the doctor. Uh, I'm just going to keep popping ibuprofen and hope that someday I won't have to use it anymore, right? 
Um, so, but our hearts and our minds reveal the truth of who we really are. And our standing with God, Jesus tells us, is not based on our outward behaviors. And that's one of the biggest reasons that the Pharisees didn't get along with Jesus. Because before he came around, they felt really good about themselves. That they could compare their actions with that of anybody else and feel very justified. They could maintain a very high standard of outward personal holiness and feel great about who they were. But now Jesus is saying, you know what, all that stuff doesn't matter at all. Now, what were the things that the Pharisees were doing? They, they weren't doing anything bad. In fact, most of what they were doing was really good. They, they kept the law to the letter of the law. But here's the thing, that sometimes we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. You know, we can avoid bad things because we're afraid of punishment or because we feel like we ought to do something. We can act out of compulsion. We can do all the right things and not experience a change in heart, which is what the Pharisees we're doing. See, Jesus tells us that this commandment actually gets to the root of what it means to be a faithful follower of God. That's to love God and to love others with all that we are, our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength. You know, how do we love God with our minds? Well, Paul tells us it's to think of these things. You know, thinking is actually an action, but it's not something external. It's really difficult to tell, though, what someone else is thinking, isn't it? You know, I've been married now for over 10 years, and it's pretty obvious to me that Megan and I still have no idea what each other are thinking pretty much all the time. I always, every time I think I know what, she th what she's thinking, I'm always wrong. And every time she thinks that she knows what I'm thinking, she's always wrong. We have this great... Uh, struggle with trying to interpret the other person's thoughts. It's so difficult. You know, here's an important side note, though, that, that, that as a guy, um, we can't underestimate how important the things that we say are. You know, as, as a man, I constantly think to myself, oh gosh, Megan is beautiful today. But if I never verbalize it, and she never knows that I'm thinking it, and those times when she says, hey honey, how do I look? And I say, you look great. What does she think? He didn't mean that. He's only saying that because I asked him what he thinks. Now, if, I if I verbalize that a little more often, maybe she would actually start to believe me. That's, that's a whole different subject, though. Um, <laughs> how do we love the Lord with our minds? How do we love him with our minds? How do we ensure that our faith isn't just outward actions with no inward components? How do we make sure we're not like the Pharisees? Well, Paul tells us to think on these things. We're going to go through them real quickly. Think on whatever is true. Whatever is true. Now, I was helping Kaylin with her first grade math homework this week, which is always dangerous. Um, and she asked me, Daddy, is it true that 9 plus 2 equals 11? I had to think about this for kind of a long time. And I thought, well, I know it used to be true, but now you guys are doing some new math, right? And the new math, I don't know if 9 and 2 is still 11, because how do I make a 10 out of the 9, and, and do I use the doubles factor and all these different things, right? I, I'm not quite sure what is truth. Well, there's another time in Scripture, Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate asks this same question. Jesus had been, had been brought before him, handed over by the Pharisees, he's given to Pilate, and Pilate says to Jesus, so are you a king? And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world, 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Now here's Pilate. He's, he's just trying to, to, to wash his hands of everything. What is truth? This existential question. Well, Jesus says that I have come to bear witness to the truth. That everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what is the truth? Well, the truth is the Lord. He is the truth. In him there is no falsehood. He cannot be associated with that which is not true. In Psalm 26, 4, the psalmist makes his plea before the Lord and says, I do not sit with men of falsehood. I do not consort with hypocrites. Now, how do we know what something is? Well, one of the ways we can know what something is is by looking at the opposite. What it is not. You know, what's the opposite of true? It's untrue. Dishonest. Sketchy. You know, are we true in our thoughts? Am I a man or woman of integrity? Do I say what I mean or do I say what I think you want to hear? And really I'm thinking of something else. Next, whatever is honorable. Honorable. Something worthy of honor and high respect. Dignified, noble, distinguished, worthy. The, the way we hear this term used most often today um, is, a, is in relation to the judicial system. You know, judges, your honor. And most, the, the honorable so-and-so presiding. You know, if, if something is honorable, it's worthy of deep respect. It has intrinsic value. It's something that is worthy of reverence. And the opposite is dishonorable. Something that brings shame or something that robs us of our honor. Or whatever is just. What does just mean? This is what's, what's fair, what's right, guided by truth and reason. Now, Jesus' brother James became known as James the Just, and historically he is said to have been made the bishop, the first bishop of Jerusalem by Peter, James, and John. James the Just. And if you read his book, the book of James, you'll see that the book of James is full of practical wisdom, application. How do we put Scripture into practice in our lives? See, in our society, we highly value justice, but typically that is only for ourselves. Whatever is pure. Now, purity is the lack of contamination. It's being free from extraneous matter. Innocence. This is an absence of sin. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Psalm 19.8 tells us that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, God's word, his commandment is pure. It's perfect. It's free from contamination. In the Old Testament, the Lord demanded a pure, perfect, spotless, un spotless, unblemished lamb as a sacrifice for sins. And then in 1 Peter 1, we read that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, Christ became the innocent, pure lamb for us. Think of whatever is lovely. Lovely. This goes beyond external beauty. This is delightful. Having a beauty that appeals to the heart and to the mind as well as to the eye. Having a great moral or spiritual beauty. Psalm 84.1 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, 
O Lord of hosts. Now, what is the opposite of lovely? Ugly. Ugly. And that also means more than external, especially here in the South. If you talk about someone being ugly, are you talking about the way that they look? Are you talking about their heart, their attitude, their, their mindset? Whatever is commendable. This means worthy of praise. The last few things go together. If it's excellent, if it's anything praiseworthy, this is an all-inclusive, all-exhaustive list. Commentator William Hendrickson said that nothing that is really worthwhile for believers to ponder and take into consideration is omitted from this summarizing phrase. There's nothing that we ought to think about that Paul does not include here in this list. So why are we commanded to think of these things? Well, it's because our minds naturally gravitate towards the other things. When we inverse that list, when we invert it, the untrue, the dishonorable, the unjust, the impure, the unlovely, the un commendable. And it all boils down to this, that our thoughts are just as important as our actions. And Jesus was just as concerned with how we think than with how we act. And we have to go beyond the surface and deal with the thought and heart issues behind our sin. See, it's so much easier to address actions than attitudes. You know, we can sin in our, in our thoughts and nobody knows. That's the danger of the sinful mind, that nobody can really understand how wicked I really am. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equates thinking with action. He says that if you think that you hate someone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. He equates anger and hatred with murder. He equates lust with adultery. He says that these two things are the same. Thinking and action are the same thing. See, what we think is important. And the things that we consume with our minds, the shows, the movies, the the images, the books that are available now, they're largely not filled with these things. You know, we look around, we don't see a lot of excellent and pure and lovely and worthy things. And some of us might say, well, that's fine. Let's just blame the media or let's blame somebody else for that. Well, the the fact of the matter is that if we didn't consume it, they wouldn't produce it. And the media is just a reflection of society and what society wants. And some might say, well, that's just society in general. I would never do that or Christians would never do that. And and the the sad fact is that, that there is no statistical difference between the viewing and consumption habits of Christians and non Christians. This is across the board, entertainment, pornography, internet usage. There's no statistical difference in the habits of Christians versus unchristians. This can be this is either utterly shocking or it's not surprising at all if we know our own hearts. You know, how many of us instinctively pick up our phones the moment that we wake up to see what's going on in the world around us? You know, how many of us obsessively watch the news or check our social media feeds to to always know what's happening? And here's a few statistics for you. The average human alive today will spend more than five years of their life on social media and nearly eight years of their lives watching television. Now, like I said, I'm not very good at math, but that's a long time. And most of us can get sucked in without even thinking about it. Smartphone users check their phones on average over 80 times a day. 
which is like roughly once every 11 minutes. When I, actually, when I heard that, I thought that's a little bit low. So most people I know check it much more than that. You know, we spend an average of four hours every day on our phone. That's on average. So what are the things that are going into our minds? What are the things that we are thinking about? How do we get our minds off of those things that they naturally gravitate towards and onto these things of Christ? Well, the first thing is to disengage. Take a step back. Step away from what you normally do and examine your thought life. A great way to do this is is by taking a media fast. By putting it all down and allowing your mind a chance to breathe. You know, so many of us overstimulate ourselves just because we don't really know anything else. We need to be filled with something. You know, we're trying to compensate for depression or anxiety or all these other things in our life, and we just want something else to think on. Yet the answer might be as simple as walking away. You know, literally go on a walk. Now, you don't have to go on a 500-mile walk. Nobody has the time for that. But step back. Think about what you do and what you think. Put your thoughts to the test. See, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, to take every thought captive means not to allow our minds to wander even for a moment. You know, there's no such thing as a throwaway thought. If we take the words of Jesus seriously, then if we think it, it's the same thing as if we've done it. Every thought we take is subject to judgment according to Christ. It's important to take every single thought captive. You know, back in the time of the Civil War, uh, gangrene was a really big problem. If, you, if you've uh, ever been to a museum or you've, you've uh, read about it, um, you know, this is a huge issue. And in fact, most soldiers were not killed by bullets or cannonballs directly, but because of the resulting infections that they would get as a result of uh, some infection developing in a wound. And, and the only way to treat gangrene, there's, there's three ways, right? You've got to remove the dead matter. You've got to amputate. Or in fact, you could use maggots. Um, you could just kind of put it on there and let those things eat away at the bad parts of life. But... But you could never, if you didn't get all of it, you'd be in danger of having another infection. That's why you'd see if you had a, if you had a wound down here, what would they do? They'd, they'd cut you up here. Because you never know how far the infection has gone in. Every little bit counts. It's the same in our thought life. We've got to examine our thoughts to see if every thought is on one of these things? Do, I, do my thoughts line up with this list? And if not, if I allow even a, a momentary thought to linger, I'm at, I'm at danger of future infection. But it could be really easy to turn ourselves then into a Pharisee. To, to think, alright, well I've got to avoid these things and not do this and not do that and maybe if I could, could do all of these things, finally I can, I can have it right. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that our standard must always be a positive one. We must never think of holiness merely in terms of not doing certain things. For every type of holiness teaching which simply ends at that and telling us not to do certain things for a certain period is always negative. But the true teaching, however, is always positive 
Of course, we must not do certain things, but the Pharisees were expert at that, and they stopped right there. See, the key to keeping a godly mind is by substituting the unworthy with the worthy, removing those thoughts and substituting them with something good and worthy. Now, we've got a little puppy at home now. Uh, she's almost five months old, sweet little dog, black little labradoodle. Um, she is really nice and awesome, but the problem with her is that she is a puppy. And, and puppies get into literally everything. We have toys and stuffed animals and shoes and hair bows and these things all around our house. Every time you turn your head, that dog is chewing up something that she should not be chewing on. This is one of the worst investments we've ever made in our lives, okay? But the way to train a puppy isn't just to take away the things that are bad. It's to substitute them with something that she's allowed to chew or allowed to play with. You know, she has her little stuffed tiger, a little stuffed toucan, these little things. So we take, I, if she comes running out and my shoe's in her mouth, I take it out of her mouth and I give her something that she's allowed to have. That's what this is like. You know, removing these thoughts and filling up that space with the things that we ought to be thinking about. Focusing our minds on the things that are worthy and not just removing the things that aren't. Removing the impure and placing them with the pure. The worthy, the holy, the lovely, the honorable, and the just. You know, what could possibly be these things? Well, Colossians 3, 2 says to set our minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. You know, the things that are above. What's above? The Lord. God's word. The Lord is true. He's honorable. He's just. He's pure. He's lovely. He's commendable. He's excellent. He's praiseworthy. And so is his word. Now, Psalm 119 tells us, how can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. His word is worthy of contemplation and examination. And in fact, the more time we spend dwelling on the Lord and on his word, the more our minds will be filled with these things, the thoughts that are worthy. And amazingly, we will also be more at peace with the world around us. And when we allow the Lord and his word to penetrate into our hearts and to work their way into our minds, then we will see real effective change. It can literally change the way that we think. And the more time that we spend with him, the more time we want to spend with him, the more we start to think about him. Remember that time when you first met your spouse and you just couldn't stop thinking about them. But the more we fall in love with the Lord, if we love him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, then the more we'll want to think on him, the more our minds will be filled with these things. For he is true and honorable, just and pure, lovely and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy. We might understand what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, where he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, we are here today, and many of us, Lord, have not thought things that we are very proud of. We haven't thought things that are commendable. We haven't thought things that are lovely and pure and true and just. And the amazing thing, Father, is that you know. You know everything about us, and yet you still love us, and you desire us to love you. 
We're thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And we pray that we could have your spirit, that you would be at work in our lives and in our minds, that we would take every thought captive, that we would spend our time thinking on these things. We could find the peace that our hearts truly long for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.